Good evening. My name is uh, Clive Jones. I'm the chairman of the Runnymede Trust and welcome to the biannual Jim Rose Lecture and welcome to the LSE. I was here during the uh, 1960s when there was nothing as grand as this. I just happened to be captain of the only Marxist rugby team in the world. Uh, <laughs> somewhat short-lived once we'd ended UDI and Rhodesia and the Vietnam War and various other things we sort of resume to a normal life. Um, but it's great to be back at the LSE and it's great to welcome you all here tonight. In 1968, Jim Rose and Anthony Lester co-founded the Runnymede Trust to counter racist propaganda and to develop programs for an increasingly diverse society. From then until his death in 1999, Jim Rose's contribution and devotion to racial justice and civil rights in the UK was unwavering. He was a key figure in race relations in Britain over four decades, and his seminal report, Colour and Citizenship, co-authored with Nicholas Deakin, has shaped the way we understand and think of racial equality today. And we're absolutely delighted that uh, Jim's widow, Pam, is here with us tonight, along with his nephew, Jonathan. Welcome. The Runnymede Trust established the, uh, the Jim Rose Lecture, and there's the man there, to mark his enduring legacy. The inaugural lecture was hosted by Lord Anthony Lester. Since then, we've heard from uh, Lord Ali and Sally Armstrong, and uh, more recently, Raggy Omar. Tonight, we are pleased to be hosting the lecture in association with the LSE Sociology Department. And our guest tonight is the wonderfully eminent author, Amitav Ghosh, who will be giving the lecture entitled Belonging, Diaspora, and Community, which will be followed by a conversation with uh, Safrad Manzur, who will introduce uh, Amitav very shortly. We'll then go on to hear from Claire Alexander, uh, an LSE academic and one of our Runnymede trustees, they're going to introduce a, a, a joint Runnymede and LSE higher education project, a knowledge transfer project called Bangla Stories. And you'll also be hearing from our new director, Rob Barclay. It's been a year of change for Runnymede. Um, sadly, we had to say goodbye to uh, our director of 10 years, Michelin Lafleche. Um, she left us financially robust possibly the first time we've been financially robust in 40 odd years, and equally robust in a research sense. We also said goodbye to three wonderful and very long-standing trustees, Richard Stone, who played such a, a crucial and vital role in the Lawrence Inquiry, Kate Gavron, the most committed and active of trustees, both in terms of fundraising and checking every report that we've ever written, and my predecessor as chairman, Samir Shah, the inestimable Samir Shah, Samir Shah. And we all owe to all of them a very big and considerable debt. We'll miss them all around the trustees' table. But let's begin the lecture. Please welcome Safraz, who will now formally introduce Amitav and his work. Hello, good evening. If this microphone's working, okay. Um, 
I don't need you to tell, I don't need you to tell you, but um, Amitav Ghosh is one of India's best-known writers, with books including The Circle of Reason, The Glass Palace, and most recently The Sea of Poppies. Um, when he's not winning awards for his novels, he's also busy writing for, amongst others, Granta and The New Yorker. Um, he was born in Calcutta in 1956, then studied in Britain, and now divided time between India and the United States. And I thought that with such a fluid existence, it's perhaps not surprising that you've chosen to talk about belonging, diaspora, and community. Um, the plan is that he's going to talk for about 20 minutes, then we're going to have a conversation, and then we'd like it to be a conversation in which you take part. So let's start by um, asking him if I to start with your picture, please. Sure. Um, okay. Well, it's, a, it's really a great pleasure to be here tonight uh, to do this Jim Rose uh, lecture. Uh, I uh, actually came uh, uh, to England for the first time shortly after the Runnymede Trust was founded. And I remember, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it played such an important part in public life in those days. And Jim Rose himself was such a, a visionary figure. So it's uh, really uh, an extraordinary pleasure to be here today. And I'd like to, th to, uh, to thank everyone who's uh, been involved in inviting me here, Rob Barkley, Claire Alexander, Jaya Chatterjee, and Clive for this wonderful in introduction. So thank you very much. Now I'm going to talk about, um, uh, I'm just going to uh, tell you a little bit about uh, uh, something that happened to me many, many years ago. Uh, when I was a, uh, when I was a, a student uh, studying for a, uh, a degree in anthropology, Somehow I, I ended up as a, a, you know, doing a DPhil in anthropology at Oxford. It was, it, was a, it was one of those accidental things. And I found myself, and I found myself in, in Egypt, in a small village uh, in Behera province. And, uh, well, you know, it was, a, uh, as anthropologists do, I, I, I lived in a sort of mud hut, on, you know, with the, chi with the chickens and everything. But uh, what, once a month I'd go off to Alexandria, and uh, there was a bar I'd go to sometimes when I needed to take refuge from Egypt and its inhabitants. Uh, it was in a dockside neighborhood, not far from the lane where Lawrence Durrell had lived while writing the Alexandria Quartet. As bars go, this one was dim, subdued, and usually empty. The doorway was curtained with strings of colored beads, and inside there were a few tin tables and folding chairs. The year was 1981, and I was 25. I'd spent much of the last year living in a small village in the interior of Egypt. Although I'd made many friends, I was still inescapably an outsider. Sometimes when the privations of village life became unendurable, I would escape to Alexandria for a weekend. Yet the bustle of the city, welcome as it was, often had the effect of heightening rather than assuaging my homesickness. What I needed was some contact with the familiar, a taste of remembered spices, a touch of home. But it seemed that chance had brought me to the one place in the world where there were no people from the Indian subcontinent. My compatriots, usually so ubiquitous, were nowhere to be seen in Alexandria. In this once cosmopolitan city of several hundred thousand people, there was not a, not a single Indian restaurant. One evening, I think it was in February 1981, I just seated myself and ordered a Stella beer, when the bead strings swung apart to admit a loud and boisterous party of some half dozen men. I knew at once from their voices that they were from my part of the world. Did they speak to me first or I to them? 
I don't remember, but this I do remember, that they were not in the least bit surprised to come upon a lone Indian in a bar in Alexandria. We fell quickly into conversation and I discovered that they were sailors on a merchant vessel registered in Panama. Their ship had docked in Alexandria after passing through the Suez Canal. Being scheduled to depart the next day, they decided to spend a few hours ashore. They were of varied provenance, some from northern India and some from the south. Although dissimilar in age, they were dressed alike in jeans and sneakers and pastel-colored golf shirts, the off-duty clothes of well-paid working men. They worked together in the ship's engine room, and it was clear that they were a tight-knit team. The oldest was in his late 40s, a wiry, alert man with an air of unspoken authority. He bore the official title of chief engineer, but there was something in his manner that reminded me of the headman of a village. In a while, the talk turned from them to me, and I told them about my experience of rural Egypt and the flea-infested room in which I lived. My complaints must have had a keener edge than I had intended, for they soon began to exchange glances. Presently, the chief took a gulf of beer and said in a tone of inquiry, but if it doesn't suit you here, why don't you come away with us? <laughs> this was so unexpected that I was briefly silenced. Yes, chalo hamare saath, come with us. Other voices were now joined to the chiefs. Yes, why don't you join us? There's plenty of room on our ship. We'll find you a bunk and you'll eat with the rest of us. The food's not bad. My head reeled. Surely they were joking. Was it really possible to join a ship's crew at a moment's notice? <laughs> what about the captain, I said. Wouldn't he have to give his permission? Oh, they laughed. The captain doesn't need to know. He's from... <laughs> He's from Cyprus. <laughs> he doesn't know our names and he can hardly tell us apart. <laughs> He'll never figure it out. And if he does, said the chief, we'll tell him we signed you on. That's all there is to it. If we tell him, he'll accept it. He knows better than to make trouble for us. After all, we can make trouble for him too. Really, I said. But if you make trouble for your captain, wouldn't that be mutiny? The chief gave a great guffaw of laughter. Trouble doesn't have to, be, have to be a big drama, you know. There are many ways of dealing with a gandu of a captain. <laughs> he could trip in a hatchway or break his head while going down a ladder. <laughs> many things could happen to him. There were smiles and nods all around the table. Anyway, the chief said, don't worry about that. You leave the captain to us. We'll make sure there's no trouble. Just know that if you want to come, you're welcome. Our next port of call is Genoa in Italy, and after that we'll go to Rotterdam and then Liverpool. You can get off wherever you like. I raised my eyebrows. You make it sound like a bus, I said. <laughs> is it really that easy to get on and off? It may seem strange to you, the chief said, but in our line of work it happens all the time. He pointed to one of the crewmen. Look, he came aboard in Singapore and is going to change ships in Rotterdam. And over him over there, we found him in Manila and took him aboard. It happened the night before we left. I understood now why they had taken my presence at the bar so easily in their stride. The sight of a young uh, Desi adrift in a foreign port held no surprise for them. They came across many such, and in all likelihood, they had all been in a similar situation at some time or another. They took it for granted that when you were stranded, you just moved on, joined another crew, took another ship. I thought I'd traveled a fair amount and seen something of the world. But it seemed to me now that in comparison to the wanderings of these sailors, my travels were like those of a mosquito, exploring an expanse of skin from the outside. 
They, on the other hand, had entered the world's bloodstream and were carried along by its flow like platelets. The image was both arresting and powerfully attractive. I fell silent and the chief thumped me on the shoulder. Take your time, he said. Don't be in a hurry to make up your mind. Our ship won't leave before nine tomorrow morning. <laughs> if you decide to join us, come to the dock. We'll find a way of bringing you aboard. On a scrap of paper, he scribbled the name of the ship and the number of the dock where it was berthed. He handed me the note as we emptied the last of the, of the beer. Think about it, he said. That night back in my hotel, I woke several times to look at the scrap of paper. But for the evidence of the chief's scribble, the conversation of the evening before could have been a hallucination or a dream, prompted by the surfacing of a memory of some long-forgotten nautical novel. This was, after all, 1981. I was not living in the 19th century, when a young man had the option of running away to sea. When I got out of bed at sunrise, the whole thing seemed so improbable and unlikely. I felt I had no option but to confirm for myself that it had really happened. The only way to do this was to go down to the port to see if the ship was really there and if any of the crew were on the dock. I paused, I paused to pocket my passport and throw a few things in a shoulder bag. Just so I told myself the chief should know that I had given his offer some serious thought. I went down to wait for the tram at the Shatby stop. For one reason or another, it was slow in coming, and I got to the port much later than I had intended. By the time I found the right dock, the ship had already departed. I should have felt foolish as I stood at that vacant dock, fingering the passport in my pocket. But instead, I was aware of a lingering and regretful uncertainty, as if I had set out in search of a ghost ship that had vanished over the horizon under a cloud of full sail. This was my closest encounter with a way of life that has persisted for centuries, albeit in a state of near-spectral invisibility. When we think of the many-masted sail ships that once roamed the oceans, we tend to think of their crews as consisting of crusty sea salts recruited from London's East End or from the whaling ports of New England. But the truth is that many, sometimes most, members of these crews were men like those I'd encountered at, uh, at the Athens Bar in Alexandria. In the lists and manifests of British and American sailing ships, these men were generally listed as Lascars, a term that derives from a Perso-Arabic word for mercenary or paid hand, though actually it's Portuguese, it became Portuguese, this word. These men came from many different parts of the Indian Ocean Rim, the coast of East Africa, the ports of modern Malaysia and Indonesia, the shores of the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and so on. But the majority seemed to have come from the Indian subcontinent, in particular from my native province, Bengal, at Trafalgar, fully 15% of Nelson's men were foreigners, and a substantial number of these were Laskers. Indeed, none of the imperial navies of the 19th century could have functioned without the cheap labor supplied by Laskers and their North African and uh, Pacific equivalents. On merchant ships, the proportions of Laskers was often even greater than on military vessels. A case to point is the William Stewart, an English sail ship picked at random from the records of the Harbour Master's office in Sydney. On a voyage from London to Sydney in 1854, she shipped a crew of 42 men and eight passengers. Of the 42 members of the crew, only seven were white men. Twen uh, 28 were listed as ordinary Laskers, while the rest were of other Lasker ranks, such as Sarang, Overseer, or Topaz. Four of the sailors were from my birthplace, Calcutta. The passengers, on the other hand, were all English. Well, Laskers have been, uh, we know more and more about them now. Rosina Visram, as many of you know, has done some wonderful work. Uh, is that you? <laughs> well, 
<laughs> well, I've, I've used your work a great deal, and uh, I, I really admire it a great deal. So it's very nice that uh, we finally meet. And, and there have been others as well, Michael Fisher, Isaac Land, and so on. And they've done wonderful work and shown uh, the degree to which the Laskers uh, really impacted a city like London. By the late 18th century, there were really uh, certain areas of the dockside areas that were largely Lasker, uh, where you had Lasker boarding houses, where you had a Lasker way of life. Um, I really find it so extraordinary that, uh, you know, we have such a thriving South Asian community in, uh, in London, but that they haven't built any memorials to the Laskers. Because the Laskers were, to my mind, pioneers in every way. Uh, I, I'll just talk about two or three uh, uh, ways in which they were truly pioneers. Um, they were, in every sense, to my mind, uh, the forerunners of the industrial workforces that were to come out of Asia and Africa in the 20th century to uh, work in the factories of, uh, uh, of Europe uh, and America. Why do I say this? Well, one reason is that the Laskas were the first to adapt to industrial rhythms of work time because they worked on ships. These ships uh, were run according to this uh, schedule of watch and watch, which is that you have four hours on deck and four hours off deck. It's perhaps the most rigorous kind of industrial uh, uh, you know, work rhythm that has ever existed. It's an incredibly hard discipline to accustom yourself to. Uh, and the Laskas were the first uh, to sort of um, uh, to, uh, to adapt to this. Another way in which the Laskas adapted was language. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing that, the, you know, we have so few descriptions of Laskas, very, very few. I mean, there's this huge body of nautical literature uh, in the West, you know, especially uh, English nautical literature. There's this enormous sort of field of uh, nautical literature. There's Joseph Conrad. There's, there are all those people. In all those works, it's so rare to come across any kind of individuated depiction of Alaska. They're almost completely faceless. Whenever they're spoken of, they're spoken of by their titles, Sarang or Laskar or whatever. They're very, very rarely represented by name. In fact, the few writers who have represented Laskars in any kind of realistic way are American. Melville has a marvelous description of Alaska in, um, uh, in one of his books, uh, Redburn. James Fenimore Cooper has some uh, very interesting descriptions of Laskars in his books. Uh, what's interesting about these descriptions is that, you know, uh, 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 Melville provides a sort of really wonderful uh, account of his uh, encounter with Alaska in Liverpool. Uh, and they were completely fluent in English. They spoke English, uh, you know, uh, extremely well. Uh, Fenimore Cooper says this as well. And at the same time, their patterns of organization were completely different from those of Western sa sailors. Uh, for one thing, one of the things that we see repeatedly referred to in, the, uh, in novels and memoirs is that, uh, you know, whereas uh, British sailors were flogged, British and American sailors uh, were regularly flogged, Laskers were flogged too, they, they were often flogged incredibly brutally. But uh, one of the things that uh, often happened uh, to them is that they had their own patterns of justice within uh, uh, their organizations. So you would have, uh, say, a serang enforcing a certain pattern of justice within his group, and they often used ordeals, you know, trial by ordeal. Uh, and Fenimore Cooper's given a wonderful descrip description of a trial by ordeal. Uh, similarly, you have these trials by ordeal. And it's an interesting thing to think of how uh, such a system of justice would have been enforced upon a ship because uh, 
Uh, after all, uh, these were people from entirely different backgrounds. Some were Malays, some were Bengalis, some were Punjabis. Uh, many of them were Muslims, but there were also many Christians. There were many Hindus, especially Hindus of the lowest castes, uh, who often were signed on to the ships as Kasabs, uh, which is what the term was for what is now called a Jamadar. Uh, so, uh, you know, in so many of these ways, uh, 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 Laska life was really the first example we know of of uh, a South Asian symbiosis with the West, you know, with an industrial West. And it's, it seems to me so extraordinary that we know so little about it, really, because uh, Rosina has done this wonderful work on their lives uh, uh, in, the, in the city. But what their lives were like at sea, what was the texture of their lives at sea? What was the nature of their organization at sea? Really, so little is known about that. It's, uh, in a way, it's, it's kind of startling. But the Laskas were pioneers not only in that direction, in the direction of adapting to the West. They were also pioneers in uh, filtering the West into India, into the, into the Indian subcontinent. So many of the words that we now assume to be just common uh, um, South Asian words, uh, in fact, came to India through the Laskari dialects. Uh, you know, Balti, for example, which is a famous Portuguese word. Uh, you know, you, it's impossible to think of India today without the Balti, but, uh, you know, the, Balti actually meant uh, a ship's bucket, which was a leather contraption. And so many other... Uh, uh, one of the very interesting things uh, uh, about this is uh, the word kamra. If you think about it, kamra means room uh, in Hindustani, many other Indian languages. But what was the, what was the word for the internal division of space uh, in India before that? Uh, we don't really know because uh, kamra actually began by meaning ship's cabin. You know, again, it's a word, uh, it's camera, really. Uh, it's uh, adapted from the Portuguese and passed on to the Indian languages. So in both these ways, you have this sort of very intricate fusion uh, of the, the Laskas acting as a kind of uh, a filter between uh, in these two directions. Now, one of the things that really does interest me very much about the Laskas also is uh, why so many of them were from the East Coast. Uh, of course, many were also from, uh, from the west coast of the Indian subcontinent, but those who were from the west coast were mainly Kachis, Gujaratis, and so on. A lot of Goans, a uh, lot of Sri Lankans. But many, uh, disproportionately, uh, they were Bengali. Um, and of course, you know, it makes sense that uh, Bengal is a deltaic landscape. Uh, there, were, there were boats, there was a sort of uh, familiarity with, uh, with ships, with sailing. But I think there's another reason for that. And, uh, you know, in some, uh, my intuition about this comes from my own family. Uh, my family is from Bangladesh. It's from, uh, uh, it's from the district of Bikrampur in, uh, in, in Bangladesh. But uh, our family legend says that, in fact, they were originally from Borishal, which is another district in Bangladesh. So they moved from Borishal to Bikrampur. Then in 1856, they left Bikrampur and moved uh, further upriver. They moved to, Patna, uh, they moved, uh, to Chapra, which is in Bihar. Uh, we went back to look for my. Uh, we went back to look for the village that is thought of as uh, uh, the ancestral village in Bikrampur, and when we went to look for it, of course, it was under the river, and it had been under the river. People said for over a hundred years, and I'd often ask myself why my family started moving like that. And when I saw that, I realized why it was because uh, the village was buried. I mean, it was drowned. And I think this is one of the reasons why there is such a sense of a kind of uh, uh, unsettled uh, uh, landscapes within Bengal. I think it's an ecological thing that, you know, the movements of the rivers 
actually have often created what you would call today ecological refugees. And this goes back, you know, uh, generations are, uh, you know, uh, really millennia. And I think about this a lot because I contrast it with the west coast of India, where, of course, uh, which is in many ways a very fortunate coast. Uh, it's not uh, subject to these great uh, tidal invasions. It's not subject to cyclones so much, though there was a cyclone this year for the first time uh, in centuries. But, um, you know, if you look at, say, Hindu families from Goa, for two, three hundred years, they preserved the memory of the family temple to which they'll go back, even though they were driven away during the Inquisition, but they, they preserved the idea of the family temple, of that family link. This link, I don't think, exists even notionally uh, within, say, uh, uh, Bengali Hindu families. It's lost very early. And I think this is, in some sense, uh, a part of the... Uh, uh, of that adaptation, uh, you know, to the, uh, to the ecology of that landscape. Um, well, I'm almost running out of time, but uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, today is about the notion of belonging and diaspora, because, you know, when we use the word diaspora about, uh, say, South Asians, there's a sense in which, we're, uh, which we are thinking about something which is uh, uncommon or unexpected, you know, that movement becomes something that is unexpected in, uh, in certain peoples. Now, as I've said, the Laskas, uh, you know, the story I told you to begin with, the, the, these sailors, for them, movement is anything but unexpected. It's the normal condition of their life. And the more I look at my own family history, I realize that it's, uh, that's been the condition of my family for, uh, for, uh, for centuries, you know, that we've always been on the move, moving from uh, Bengal into Bihar, into Burma, into many other places. So the question that arises for me is that why do some societies have diasporas and others have settlers? You know, what is the, what is the thinking behind this? And if we think about this, you know, the question that arises first of all is, from the biggest diaspora in all of human history perhaps is the Anglo diaspora that comes out of England you know, which over a period of two or three centuries really changes the demographic uh, map of the whole world. It uh, settles uh, the North, Amer uh, North American uh, continent, it settles Australia, uh, New Zealand. Uh, so many countries are actually the entire demography of these countries is uh, uh, radically altered. So, but we, uh, on the other hand, we never ever speak of an English diaspora really. I mean, who does? Nobody does. No one speaks of an Anglo diaspora, but uh, you know, uh, people speak of other diasporas. So, so what, is, what is at stake here? And I think one of the things which is at stake is really this idea uh, of, um, you know, which comes about in colonial thinking in the late 19th century, where you have Sir Henry Maine and so on uh, theorizing this idea of the native as a settled person, the local and the native as being uh, the settled person, as opposed to the universal a person who, uh, you know, gets to travel the world freely or gets to inhabit the world freely and for whom uh, the world is a, a part of a, of a history that is uh, continuously in the making. So, um, so uh, let's think of this, uh, th this idea of belonging not from the point of view of, say, people like uh, South Asians or uh, Chinese, for example, but from the point of view of, say, the the Ur diaspora, you know, the Anglo diaspora. What does belonging mean in that? Uh, what does belonging mean in that model? 
Now, the reason I ask this is that when people come out of South Asia or out of China into Europe or into other uh, sort of settled, uh, you know, um, uh, other nation states, the idea seems to be that uh, in some way uh, they have, they're out of place, they have come to a new place, and that they have to sort of find some, uh, some uh, modality of belonging, a modality of belonging that is specific to their circumstance. And, of course, this model of belonging is one that conforms to the idea of a nation-state. That is, that the migrant has arrived in a place that has uh, its settled laws, languages, custom, and uh, usage, and that it mu the migrant must, in some way, exchange one set of loyalties for a new set of loyalties, you know? But how, what if you look at this idea of uh, belonging from the point of view of the, uh, uh, you know, of, let's say, Anglo culture? You know, what happens within Anglo culture when you have this enormous dispersal? And uh, after all, you know, some of the most, uh, some of the foundational nation states, the, um, the, the USA uh, was, after all, uh, largely uh, settled by, uh, uh, by, by Americans at that, uh, by, by, um, by English settlers at, at that point. Now, what, what happens in these circumstances? Now, we know that within, say, Australia, for an Australian, of course, there's a very powerful sense of belonging to a nation state, but there's also a sense of belonging to something wider, which is, um, you know, to use Winston Churchill's words, um, an English-speaking peoples, or a, a, a wider community, which actually reaches very widely across the, um, across the planet. There's a sense of having a kinship with, say, Americans, with Canadians, with uh, New Zealanders, and so on and so forth. And, you know, if you take this idea of exchanging loyalties, it's a curious thing that if you look at it in the colonial context, you know, uh, if you look at it even, say, in terms of organizations, we have many instances of Europeans uh, and English people taking jobs uh, with uh, native states. For example, the King of Burma uh, hired uh, some uh, Italian um, uh, engineers and so on. And many, you know, in the mid and uh, late 19th centuries, many states were trying desperately to modernize and they took on, you know, uh, many uh, floating populations of uh, Europeans as engineers, as gunners, and so on. And the curious thing is that these people entered this organization, but at every critical moment of any battle, they always sold out uh, those organizations. Their loyalties, in some sense, were never exchanged, nor indeed could they ever have been exchanged. If you think about it, I mean, suppose uh, uh, the English army marches into Burma and finds that uh, there's an Englishman over there advising the king of Burma on how to attack uh, English armies. What would they have done to him, you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, in that sense, this idea of loyalty, it's a very curious one. I mean, uh, how, how is it that we theorize this idea of loyalty in this way? within a nation state, which is actually in some way not a nation state, because it has a much wider sense of uh, extraterritorial affiliations and, uh, um, uh, and alliances and allegiances. So, you know, what I think is actually happening today is that we are in a period when the idea of the nation state itself is fading, you know, Frankly, I'm one who will mourn the nation state because I think there are many good things about the nation state, the things that we don't recognize and which only in its absence will be recognized as uh, valuable and important things. But, I, but the, the fact is that it's fading. It's fading in many, di in many different, different directions. It's fading at the top where you have, the, uh, say, the EU 
It's one way in which it's fading. Uh, uh, similarly, you have these unspoken allegiances, as in, uh, say, uh, the settler communities that are linked to, uh, to Britain in many, in many ways. And it's also fading at the bottom. You know, uh, in Pakistan, they just did a, a survey and found that less than 20% of the people uh, had anything good to say about the nation state. So, you know, in, uh, in this way, we can see that the nation states have, and what is the model of belonging that's going to arise after the nation state has in fact faded? And I think it is going to be a circumstance in which belonging and culture are actually going to take on more the form of the Anglo diaspora. You know, where it's, you are going to have these globalized communities which are deterritorialized communities, which are communities which are linked with maybe invisible uh, modes of communication often. Uh, already that's true of, say, the Chinese uh, diaspora. It will be uh, probably true of South Asian diasporas, Arab diasporas, uh, then also a general sense of a Muslim diaspora, African, Hispanic, Portuguese, and so on, all of which are increasingly global. What happens to the nature of the contacts between them? Well, they, much could be said about that, but I'm, I don't have the time to say it, so <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Lots of very, very interesting things to explore um, in amongst that. Um, I want to start by talking about the last piece. What do you think that knowledge about that prehistory, in a way, of multiculturalism and then ethnic presence in Britain, what do you think that does tells us about identity here? I mean, did, does the fact that somebody can trace their, that, that there was a non-white presence in Britain 300 years ago as opposed to just 40 or 50 years, do you think that has an implication in terms of one's sense of belonging? Look, I don't think it should, you know. I mean, after all, say... Um, uh, a, a, a British person who goes to work in, say, Dubai doesn't need to think that, you know, my ancestors were here, therefore the, I have a right to be here. You know, uh, it shouldn't work like that, really. I mean, in fact, uh, you know, we're really talking about situations often of expatriation. But yes, uh, I'm sure that there are many, many young South Asians for whom uh, it would make a difference to know that there was this deeply rooted sort of cultural presence uh, of uh, Asia. Uh, in London. So I, I, I do think it's a, it's a very important project that Rosina and others have, have launched upon to excavate this history. I just wanted to add my, um, my thoughts about I think your book, Asians in Britain, is an absolutely fantastic book and it really opened my yes. eyes as well. So anyone who hasn't read that, it's, it's a monumental book, I thought. Um, I just want to drill into some of the things you said because I think you painted a slightly benign picture of um, migration and its consequences. Um, partly with your idea that the nation state is failing anyway. But it strikes me that if you're living in, say you're living in East London, and the last 50, 60 years you've seen the same community, basically white, basically English, and then over the last 30, 40, 50 years you see new waves of immigration coming through, and then you wake up and you don't recognise anyone on your street anymore. The restaurants are all offering food that you don't particularly like. This doesn't seem like your country. I mean, isn't there some point in, is there some validity in arguing something has changed? Uh, yes, of course something has changed. I mean, you know, some um, uh, things are changing all the time, uh, really. And, you know, I don't think that migration is ever um, uh, an easy thing to adapt to, either for the, for the host community or for the, um, uh, you know, for the settler community. 
But I think it's a condition of human existence, you know. And I think the illusion lies in, in expecting the opposite, in expecting, you know, sort of undisturbed continuities, in expecting um, a sort of, a, a, you know, how shall I say, uh, a sort of pure world. And that pure world is and always has been a myth. It's, been, it's as much a myth in India as it is a myth uh, uh, in England. Uh, you know, we know that uh, enormous numbers of, uh, leave aside the Laskas, gypsies, you know, throughout the 19th century, the gypsy is so much a figure. The gypsy language, London language is saturated with gypsy language, you know. And uh, yet, where are the gypsies today? I mean, obviously, they, they faded into the wider communities. They, uh, they, they mixed into them. But you seem to be implying a sense of inevitability, whereas different countries have responded to that question in different ways. So there is an American model for how you deal with immigration. There's a British model. There's a European model. So the British model has been, I guess, one which has sort of tolerated difference and almost celebrated it to some extent, as opposed to an American model which says, you know, as long as you all sign up to the flag, do you think that the British model and the way that it's manifested itself could it have been dealt with better? I mean, are there different... How would you... Uh, look, I, I can't speak with any authority on this because it's not like I know all the details of the British model. But I do remember that, uh, say, in the, in the late 80s and so on, uh, one of the things which was very troubling uh, in Britain is that so much of the money that was given out for multiculturalism multicultural, often went to the most right-wing, the most uh, conservative elements of all the communities, you know. It actually fostered uh, division, you know. What I do think is very important and what we forget all the time, you know, uh, with the collapse of socialism, it's one of the things which has really been forgotten, is that, you know, you have to have a model for living together. You have to celebrate the virtues of living together. And this was one thing, certainly, that, you know, uh, uh, that was celebrated in that period, that was uh, spoken of in that period, you know. What has happened, I think, uh, uh, since the uh, 80s onwards is this idea that, uh, you know, that identity is a sort of, um, it, 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 how shall I say, that it's an idol to be worshipped, you know. And I, I think that has really been a great problem for um, communities everywhere. What do, you think, what do you think a citizen owes the government or the state? What should be the relationship between what the country owes its citizens and what the citizen owes the country? That's a very good question, and I don't think it can really be answered in, a, in any very easy way. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult question to answer because, you know, one thing we do know is that the sort of demand that, say, the uh, United States has foundationally made upon people who live there, uh, you know, who've chosen to become American citizens, is actually unrealistic. You know, you can't say any longer that you have this loyalty and no other loyalty. I mean, one of the questions that's asked in their citizenship exam is, uh, uh, will you, are you willing to take up arms against your uh, mother country, you know? And, uh, you know, this whole idea that there's an absolute change, that there's a change, that, that it's like a conversion experience, that you become a different person. This is no longer a possible demand, you know? That whole model of migration, that whole idea of how people come from abroad and acculturate themselves, that's just not going to happen anymore. And indeed, uh, you know, if you think about it, um, if you just think about it from the other point of view, uh, those demands were never, for example, made about uh, made of English people who settled in India. You know, they were never expected to become, as it were, culturally Indian. You know, or English people who settled in, uh, say, Lebanon or um, um, Singapore or whatever. There was never that expectation. 
Why is that expectation a realistic expectation of uh, you know people from other countries, other communities? So I think there has to be an equalization, you know, of those uh, uh, of those sorts of expectations and demands. You've visited Britain over the last twenty-five years or so. Um, as an outsider popping in every so often, give me your sort of sense of, give me a, a flash forward tracking of the last 25 years. How have you seen the country change? It's changed enormously. Uh, certainly when I, uh, when I arrived in England, uh, in, uh, it was in 1978, uh, I went straight off to Oxford when I was in my, uh, in my uh, college. You know, uh, people don't believe this now sometimes when I, uh, when I tell them, you cannot believe how much racism there was. It was like every day you would have some incident. You know, a car would stop and people would lean out and say, walk, go home. Or, uh, you know, you'd walk into a post office and the post office worker would say something incredibly nasty. And it happened, it wasn't just uh, with uh, street people. Uh, I remember, you know, there were several incidents of, um, in the colleges, uh, Indian students having their rooms defaced. Uh, I remember in New College, uh, a close friend of mine actually who's now um, a leading political scientist in Delhi, she got up to go for matriculation and uh, someone shout uh, she was in New College and someone shouted, uh, you know, nigger go home or something like that. And it was, it was just so much the commonplace of your everyday existence that you kind of, uh, uh, you just uh, accepted it really. But in the years after that, it really changed dramatically. I mean, by the, uh, you know, uh, by the mid 80s, uh, by the late 80s, early 90s, that sort of verbal aggression, uh, I think, became very rare. At least I never encountered it uh, like that uh, uh, so openly uh, again. And you, you began to see a lot of mixed race couples, uh, you know, in the streets, and there was a much greater sense of a kind of a multicultural community. In that way, Britain changed very much, I think, between those, uh, uh, years of the uh, late 70s and uh, 80s. But one of the things I've noticed is that the people who came in the, in the 60s onwards, they left and there wasn't really any sense that they had much connection with back home anymore apart from the occasional aerogram letter or whatever. Um, but in the last 10-15 years, because of flights, because of satellite television, because of phone calls, you can leave but not leave. And I'm wondering whether you think that has an impact on where you feel you belong. It's absolutely the common existence of, of not just, uh, of everybody today. I mean, whenever I come to England, one of the things which always amazes me is that uh, the taxi driver has a, uh, you know, from the airport or wherever you're going, uh, he'll have a house in Spain. And, uh, you know, uh, he'll go back and forth, uh, you know, uh, or he'll have a house in uh, rural France. And so many uh, taxi drivers I've met uh, say to me that, you know, the reason I like being there is because it reminds me of England 30 years ago. You know, <laughs> uh, and all of us—it's uh, just a commonplace. It's what used to be a weekend phenomenon that you drove to the country to, <laughs> you know, to uh, to, uh, to your country home. It's like that now. Everybody has this has this split existence. So the idea that you can have a singular sort of uh, existence—I think it's just not sustainable anymore. Everybody I know has this divided uh, has this divided existence. Actually, the only people who don't really uh, are often Americans, who will only uh, be in America, you know. But within Europe, people are now so accustomed to. Uh, in Goa, where I live, the people opposite me, they're, uh, he's a fireman from uh, from Liverpool. 
you know? <laughs> and uh, I mean, he goes back and forth as often as I do. So I think uh, to say to anyone, where do you live now, uh, actually is often a meaningless question because, because of international flights and so on, uh, all of us are to some degree carrying our homes in our bags. But aren't there some things to worry about with some of this stuff? I mean, if you've got a holiday home in Spain, that's maybe part of the uh, benefit of you know greater economic prosperity. But if you have you know if your wife has come from a village in Pakistan and you brought her over, there's, isn't there a danger that culturally a community isn't progressing if it stays too far connect too you know too often connected back to where it came from? I think that can work two ways, can't it? Because often uh, uh, you know the person who's coming back goes back and decides to remold themselves. Or to uh, you know, it can be it can be an anchor, and it can be a, it can be a catalyst for change, and I think it works in both directions. I mean, even the person who goes back from here, in a material sense, they're they're carrying back uh, all the material signs of change, and yet they're trying to preserve, if you like, uh, some aspects of their cultural belonging and so on. Again, as I say, I I really think uh, what is what is very important in this world of the future that we're going into is that you know, since uh, the late 80s, we've lost all the models that previously existed for thinking about commonalities. You know? uh, it's, just, it's just increasingly just vanishing from the face of the, from the, face of the earth. I mean, and it happened, you, know, you could see the ways in which, say, the American media celebrated the breakup of Yugoslavia. You know, these are these repressed identities which uh, once the top is taken off, the repressed identity will burst forth. But of course, in human society, it's not like that. You know, uh, people act according to the ideologies that are prevalent at the moment. And when the repressed identity becomes the privileged, uh, uh, the privileged identity, then people act it out in those ways, especially if they have no alternative way of thinking about human communities, no alternative ways of thinking about human interactions with each other. And what is the proper place of belonging within that interaction in that community? But I guess, I mean, talking about commonalities, it's partly, I guess, about you know, the idea of citizenship classes or the idea of what are the principles that glue different communities with different backgrounds or different heritages together. Um, in America, I guess, there are some, uh, some principles which may or may not be uh, actuated in real life, but they actually are some principles. Can you, can you see that model applying outside of America, the idea that you sign up to something? No, absolutely you cannot, because, uh, you know, America is a country co uh, constituted by a constitution, you know, at a particular moment, at a foundational moment. How can you do that in a country which has such, uh, uh, in a country like India, for example, where people have always existed next to each other? I mean, uh, the idea that you could have, or, for example, in India, how could you even begin to bring up these uh, issues, uh, like, for example, the banning of hijab, hijab in France? I mean, for us in India, the, I, the secular space can never be a space which actually absolutely excludes uh, uh, all signs of belonging, all signs of uh, uh, tradition. Uh, you know, I do think that it's very important to look back on other moments in history when people did find ways of coexisting with each other. You know, how many of us know, for example, that uh, in Canton, you know, Canton in China, uh, from about the 7th or 8th century, you know, Canton has one of the earliest mosques in the world. It was built by the Prophet's, uh, uh, a prophet's uncle who went there and built this mosque. And, uh, you know, until about 900, it had uh, over 100,000 uh, settlers you know, living there, uh, living in uh, these communities. Along the west coast of India, in one of my books uh, called In an Antique Land, I actually explored the ways in which uh, a Jewish 
merchant from the Middle East uh, worked with Hindu merchants, Muslim merchants, and uh, you know they worked together. How was this possible? You know, if you look at medieval texts, you often see that there are ways in which people figure out uh, modes of commonality, modes of uh, modes of existence, which are not necessarily those of citizenship. It's interesting you mentioned the, the mosques. Was this week, obviously, in Switzerland, they've um, they've had a um, a poll to do with um, the building of minarets. And one of the things I think, if you know, if you follow the media here or you're involved in it, you get a real sense that identity is in crisis, as in particularly to be British or English and white. You know, people feel like something is being threatened, and I guess that's also happening in, in Switzerland. What's your take? Do you think that's just paranoia? Do you think it's valid? <laughs> you know. Uh, look, I mean, I can see that um, at, at, uh, at one level, if you come from a city which has a certain architectural homogeneity, that you could, from the point of view of preservation, say that you, know, you don't want, uh, uh, that you want to preserve the, uh, the appearance of that city. But in this case, I don't think it's anything like that. It's, it's actually uh, an act of hostility. Uh, you know, I mean, that seems to be fairly clearly stated uh, in this. And, uh, well, what can you say? I mean, uh, um, it's very troubling. It's it's really deeply troubling that you know uh, that hostility expresses itself in uh, in, uh, in this particular form, and it's curious that uh, throughout Europe now you see this sort of hardening, uh, these hardening lines, these hardening hostilities, and uh, you know to someone like me who's uh, who's a great admirer of the EU, who's a great admirer of these processes of deliberation by which you create multicultural communities. Uh, it's, it's, it's both shocking and uh, very disturbing. As somebody who works in fiction and non-fiction, where do you feel you really nail these questions? I mean, what's the best tool to use? Is it the imagination or is it deep repertoire? Um, I always enjoyed uh, writing non-fiction. I enjoyed writing, uh, you know, uh, essays in uh, history as well. But, you know, if you're writing about India, at a certain point, you realize you just don't have the material. It just doesn't exist. I mean, say on the Laskas, for example. If I wanted to depict Alaska, there's no way I can find the material on, uh, on the life of Indian sailors. Uh, you know, I can find you 300 uh, autobiographies of 18th century, 19th century, 16th century, 17th century European sailors. You can't find a single one. Uh, for the Laskas. You look at the Indian, uh, the Girmitias, the, the Kuli, the indenture that comes out of India. The earliest, uh, the earliest memoirs we get are late 19th century, early 20th century. You simply do not have the material. And for me, at a certain point, I decided that, you know, the material just isn't there. I, I make it my business to try and know as much as is possible. And after that, I, I feel that, you know, uh, I want to make this not history, but a lived experience, you know. And in that, you have, I, I feel that I can do it perhaps uh, more completely in fiction, simply because, you know, in non-fiction, it could be impossible. Putting in the archive. Um, we've got about 10 more minutes, so I was going to take some questions if anyone has them. I think there's apparently microphones, by the way. So I'll just pick a few. So, person there with the arm, with the arm up there, and lady there with the front in the sort of second or third row. Uh, hello, Axel Landon. Um, 
I agree with you uh, in the floor of saying that uh, immigration is not a new thing. Uh, the floor in saying immigration is a new thing. And I saw a play at the National uh, not long ago called England People Very Nice detailing the arrival, successive arrivals in the uh, east end of London. Of the, first the French Huguenots and then the Jews and then the Irish and then finally the Bengalis. And in the 19th century we had three Indian MPs uh, in Parliament. I think you'd be hard pushed to find twice that uh, today. And, the, uh, and Lloyd George's India Act was steered through uh, Parliament by Lord Sinha, a Bengali. Uh, but um, what, do you, uh, what do you think that will bind together these global communities that you talk about? What ties will they share? Will it be religion, race, uh, culture? And more specifically, uh, you talked about the internal justice system that the Alaskas had. And that reminded me of this debate that's been happening about uh, the Muslim community here and uh, the idea of perhaps institutionalizing elements of Sharia law uh, for certain uh, areas of, of, of law for people to govern themselves. What do you think about those ideas? Thanks. Okay, you can have a think about them. We'll, ask the other, we'll, we'll get that question as well. Then, you oh, I forget all about it if I don't know. Don't worry, I'll make a note. <laughs> I'll selectively uh, remind you. Yeah. Um, actually, my question is uh, slightly different. I'm a huge admirer of your work. And what I really enjoyed in some of your earlier work, which was um, the like especially the circle of reason and the Calcutta chromosome, is that what it does, it, it really creates almost a different reason, a different way of thinking of the protagonist, and it leaves you really unsettled. As opposed to that, the latest one in the sea of poppies, like while reading The Lusk of Life, I, I kind of miss that texture, uh, if you know, of that way of thinking. So kind of, I know this is completely off the topic. Turn into a book group. So, uh, <laughs> so, it's, it's, so, I, so I was just, wondering, like, in kind of looking about the Lasker, why is it that I felt that, like, in the circle of reason, uh, a late 19th century, early 20th century Bengali middle class man was further to me than the Lasker today in the sea of poppies, like, in the way he was negotiating his belonging. And I was just, like, just okay. wondering what your response to that would be. Okay, so you go for that, and then I'll remind you of the last Any more hands up as well? Um, well, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very glad to know that you really like this circle of reason. You know, at a certain point, uh, books emerge out of a kind of ferment in your own mind, you know, and you can't really account for it. I, I really don't think one can account for it, and I've, uh, I, I've given up trying to account for it. <laughs> The, uh, the, uh, the, the guy back there was talking about what do you think are the issues, what, what's going to bind these disparate communities together? Is it going to be race or is it going to be religion? And then he was asking sort of a parallel with Sharia law and uh, the internal. Yes. Case. So two answers to that. The first is let's think about this, as I've said, uh, from this other point of view. What binds the Anglo-American diaspora? What is it? Is it, is, it, is it language? Is it race? Is it culture? Is it a, a shared history? What, uh, what exactly is it? And if we try to answer that question, and the, uh, the question can, I think, be more clearly answered uh, in that instance, we begin to see how difficult it is actually to answer those questions, you know. What is it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it becomes harder and harder to, to sort of, uh, uh, to, to even think about it. But the other question about, uh, uh, you know, uh, different civil laws. 
I think any society that goes down that road is courting disaster. I really do. I mean, if you look at, say, the one place uh, uh, where uh, in Africa, the one country which has managed to create, uh, uh, you know, a sort of national community as opposed to, uh, you know, local community or, or uh, particular communities, it's, it's Tanzania, and it's uh, it was uh, Malimu Nairere, you know, who insisted on creating a, a common public law to which everyone could appeal. Because even if you actually look at the sort of bases of these laws often, they were laws in, uh, you know, put in place by colonial administrators uh, with the idea of actually keeping communities separate. Okay, there's somebody up there who's got a microphone on? Yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, I really enjoyed your book, In an Antique Land, and the way in which you recovered um, the character of Bomber. Um, and I was thinking about the way in which he was able to achieve a certain status in the community that um, he found himself in. Do you think that um, host communities need to give migrants um, or immigrants a stake and positions of responsibility and empowerment in order to ease the way in which um, migration is experienced for both host and settling communities? Um. That's an interesting question again, because see, uh, I think one of the things which has been so very painful uh, about the uh, South Asian migration into Britain in the 60s onwards is that it was a migration which was restricted at that point largely to a certain class, you know, and the children who came out of this class felt that, 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 that a certain way, a certain class identity was also being thrust upon them. Now, if you look at, say, uh, the uh, Boma, uh, you, uh, you talked about uh, the 12th century and so on. You know, if you think of Egypt, you know, under the Mamluks, uh, I'm talking about the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. Look at the ways in which they, uh, uh, in, in which they incorporated people. These were societies which were incredibly uh, uh, multicultural, really. They had Circassians, they had Nubians, they had, and they brought them in as slaves. But the slaves, through slavery, could aspire to become king. You know, I mean, in fact, the slaves did. I mean, all the kings Mamluk mean slaves, so they they were all they did all become part of a ruling caste, uh, of a ruling class, if you like. I think if uh, within a society people feel uh, that after having migrated into it, that they're being thrust into a, a subordinate position that becomes psychologically very damaging and very difficult uh, for them to adapt to. But again, how much of that is actually thrust upon them and how much of that is a perception that is internal to themselves is, uh, I, I think, rather easy to, to determine. Um, okay, lady there, and then um, go over there. Uh, hello, um, Kate Telcher. Um, in your talk today, um, you um, talked about the history of the word Balti and um, your, your interest in the history of words is apparent throughout your work. Um, I was wondering, um, is it in sort of tracing etymologies um, that we, we can recover the history of contacts between peoples? I mean, the, the most, one of the most striking aspects of um, your recent novel is, of course, its wonderfully exuberant mixture of languages. And is, is, this, is, this, is it because of cult cultural contact through language that you, you continually kind of um, delight in it? Well, you know, like most South Asians, uh, I grew up uh, without any definite sense of boundary between languages. 
you know, so to me, it's my normal uh, state of existence that, you know, uh, I, I, I don't even really know where the boundaries between languages lie. But I'll tell you where, for me, in English, it became very interesting. Uh, my supervisor uh, was uh, a student of F.R. Levis, and he once said to me that, you know, the rule for italicizing words uh, when you're writing in English is that if it's in the Oxford English Dictionary, you can't italicize it. <laughs> and, you know, I tried following that rule, and if you actually follow that rule, there's almost no common Hindustani word which is not in the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> really. I mean, I sometimes look at, uh, you know, uh, uh, people who are writing today, uh, often South Asians, and I see that they've uh, italicized a word like masjid. I think that's been in the English language since the 18th century. What are you talking about? <laughs> Why should you? Uh, I mean, so, you know, uh, and especially if you look at 19th century English, it is so profoundly impacted by Asian influences. You know, by Chinese influences, by, by Hindustani influences, by Arabic influences. I think what actually happened in England, just to trace the way that the language developed, I mean, even though England didn't have, like, the, like France, uh, any kind of uh, academy, the, process, the great dictionary pro uh, projects did have some sort of cleansing effect, you know, so that, you know, by the late, uh, uh, by the 1920s and 30s, you actually have Orwell uh, writing essays saying that he wants really to celebrate only the Anglo-Saxon roots of the language and that all the Latinate roots are, are unwelcome, really. And if you think that about the Latinate roots, can you think, imagine what he thinks of the Hindustani roots, you know? <laughs> and in fact, I mean, uh, you know, the ways in which Hindustani leached into English is not just uh, through Laskari or through uh, colonials being in uh, being in England, but also through the gypsies. You know, Deco comes to uh, uh, comes into Cockney through uh, through gypsy usages. You know, so I feel that actually what happened is that the, you know the high noon of uh, racial thinking was really late 19th century to about mid 20th century, and it's in this period that uh, throughout the English-speaking world. There was a sense of a cleansing of language, you know, uh, that uh, Asian influences were driven to the uh, uh, were driven to the boundaries of the language. We're going to take, and then one more question from somewhere around that, and that'll probably be the last one. If anyone's got a question anywhere in this side, otherwise yours is the last one. Uh, and the lady right in the front is the front. Khalid Nadim, South Asian Middle East Forum. Um, what I, I I'd like to know is, what do you think the impact of Seven Seven has? has been on the communities here, especially as a person based in, in India. And how do you feel the impact of the Mumbai bombings has been on the Indian Muslim community? Can you see any similarities on the, the, the impact on both communities? Um, and how do you think India itself has, has, has dealt with this issue in terms of the relationship between, I mean, Hindus and Muslims generally? Has it, has it tarnished quite a lot or has, it, has, has the relationship improved? Well, I can't really speak for 7-7, seven, seven, uh, you know, uh, uh, but, uh, well, with India, as you know, uh, you know, everything, everything you can say, you can also say the opposite, I mean, it is almost always the case, but I do feel, <laughs> uh, I do feel that 26-11 uh, was, uh, on the whole, it was really a watershed in India. You know, it was a watershed in many ways, but most of all, it was a watershed in that it was one major uh, sort of... Uh, a crisis-causing event, which didn't result in riots, you know, which didn't result in any kind of mass uh, uh, mass uprising, any mass violence, 
And in that sense, it was something very new. And I'm not, I don't think that uh, that uh, restraint, if you like to call it that, was a result necessarily of civic consciousness or growing secularism or anything. It was suddenly that people realized that, uh, you know, you're actually in a situation of a balance of violence, you know, uh, which has perhaps been also historically one of the ways in which peace was maintained between communities, you know. Uh, sad to say, but uh, it, uh, it may well have been that. But whatever the case may be, uh, I, I do think it was uh, really a, a watershed in that sense that it didn't lead to any kind of uh, wild reprisals, it didn't lead to anything like that. And even though there was a lot of saber-rattling, uh, especially in the media, uh, the Indian government's response uh, was also, I think, quite exemplary. I mean, uh, you know, uh, they recognized that Pakistan had a problem, that there was this problem, and that... Uh, so I think a lot of positive things did come out of it. think in those ways. The nation state probably has faded for, for those of us who are um, in a position where we can enjoy the kind of lifestyle that you describe. But I feel far from it fading, um, it has become far more difficult for people um, who live in different circumstances to actually move at all. And this is something we found when, uh, in our research for this project that people who moved in 47 and live literally just across the border from their families have never been able to go back, have never, they never call, they, they maintain no contact. So I think one can over-exaggerate um, the sort of transnationalism of globalization and underestimate the extent to which, in fact, global, globalization and the nation state are making the kind of mobility you talk about so much more difficult. Uh, I absolutely agree, Jaya. I, I, I don't... Look, when I was a kid, for us, the nation-state was an expression of freedom. You know, the idea is that the nation-state is a sort of expression of a collective act of free will, you know. Today, what the nation-state is, is exactly what you say. It's, in fact, a large reservation. You know, in as much as nation-states exist, it's for containing populations and preventing movement. So that, uh, that I would not, uh, uh, you know, I would not dispute at all. But I do think that even under those conditions, if you look, uh, uh, say, whether it be in India or in Bangladesh or wherever, uh, today, uh, an ordinary person, even within a village, uh, their conception, their relationships with the world outside are saturated uh, with a sort of knowledge of each other in a way that wasn't the case, uh, I think, uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And in that sense, even though they may not be physically able to travel, they are, in some, uh, in some imaginative way, engaged in an act of travel, and that makes the physical impossibility of travel even, even worse. Because actually, you know, I know, as many of us South Asians do, that when you meet actual South Asians who've traveled, who are outside, who are in some other place, they almost always say, what the hell did I give it all up for? You know, why did I come? You know, uh, more often than not, you hear that. You know, but it's because of this, how shall I say, this imaginative idea that there's something better on the other side that creates this, this crisis. Okay, we're, we're up against, against it, so that's, uh, we're five minutes over, but I just want to say thank you very much to Anna Ghosh, and uh, thank you very much for turning up as well.
Good evening. Uh, my name is Claire Alexander, and I'm based in the sociology department here at the LSE. Um, firstly, I want to thank uh, Amitabh and Safras for such a fascinating discussion this evening. And I want to take just a few minutes before you all head off into the cold um, to introduce a new project related to the themes that we've discussed this evening. Um, and this is this, which is the Bangalore Stories website, an educational resource pack which is aimed at school children in Britain um, at key stage three, so aged between 11 to 14 years old. And the website is a collaboration uh, between the LSE, Cambridge, and uh, the Runnymede Trust, and has been very generously sponsored by the LSE's uh, HIFE for Knowledge Transfer Fund. The website's based on a three-year um, Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project on the Bengal diaspora, which was co-directed by Joya Chatterjee, who sat at the front, and myself. And the project explores the history and experience of migration um, from and within Bengal in the period after partition from the viewpoint of migrants themselves. It's estimated that around 20 million people have been displaced or migrated in this period. It's one of the largest migrations of the modern era. The vast majority of these, of course, remained in South Asia itself, with about 1% only uh, migrating overseas to Britain and other parts of the world. Our project focused on Bengali Muslim migrants in South Asia and in the UK, and we were exploring where, why, and how people moved, and how they made new lives for themselves and their families in unfamiliar places. Our two researchers, Anu Jaleh, who unfortunately can't be here today, and Shazad Faroz, who sat at the front, have been working in India, in Bangladesh and Britain to collect the life histories of migrants and they've collected over 150 interviews along with photographs and family trees which form the substance of this website. The stories that these migrants tell are extraordinarily rich and moving and provide a, a powerful lens onto the sweep of history from below. And we're keen to give, the, give this wonderful stories as wide an audience as possible. We've been very lucky to draw on the expertise of the Running Me Trust to do this. Runnymede has a long-standing educational expertise and a commitment to working with young people, and they've helped us translate our material into a more accessible and contemporary form. I actually think that all academic researchers should be made to communicate their research to 13-year-olds. It's a salutary experience, I can tell you. And I'm personally very grateful to Robert Berkeley and Bastiana Balfon, who've been helping us with this, and have been incredibly patient um, with what's been a challenging exercise, particularly for someone who's basically technophobic, as I am. And we decided to um, open up the gateway to this fascinating and very complex history through the personal stories of eight real-life migrants, some of them the four you can see here, um, one of them from each of the eight sites that we worked in, and who have very different experiences of migration and settlement. And a, a couple of them I'm going to present here, and the illustrations are done by David Fathers, and I think are, are really stunning. So the first one is Mohammed Shamsul Haq, who serendipitously actually was a Laskar and now lives in Dinajpur on the northwestern Bangladesh border with India. Uh, this is him on the right. I think the garden's left is his, one of his sons. Uh, he told Anu, who did this interview, that he believed he was 108 years old. He may have not been quite that old, but anyway. <laughs> his family were originally from the, from the Punjab, but Shamsa was born in Calcutta during the time of the Raj. His father worked for the British on the railways. But Shamsul told us that he used to dream of the sea and of traveling. He got work as an oilman 
on a British steamer called the Arenda and travelled to Colombo, to Africa, to Rangoon, to Singapore and Jeddah, as well as to London. In London, he told us he admired the beautiful houses, the wide roads and the big warehouses. His ship was sunk by the Japanese in World War II and Shamsul was adrift for eight days on the sea before being rescued. He returned to Calcutta and said he'd lost the uh, desire to go to sea after that. <laughs> so he opened a tea stall, but he moved to East Pakistan and then to Assam after partition. And then in the 60s, he was moved to Dinajpur as a refugee when the Indian army threw him out. And he still lives there in a refugee camp next to this temple. And he spends his time telling his great-grandchildren about his travels. He said that he'd lost contact with his extended family, and this is a quote, we lost the dresses and contact details three times. The first time in a fire in Calcutta, the second time in Nokali in the floods, and the third time when we were chased away by the Indian army from Assam. They must be dead now, but I remember them fondly in my heart. The second story is from the UK fieldwork. Sam Uzmir is now in his late 70s, and he came to Britain in 1964 from Silet, like most of the uh, British Bengalis. Samos came on a voucher visa. He arrived in Heathrow and travelled by taxi to Burnley, where he worked in the cotton mills for 25 years as a weaver and then as a sewing machinist. He arrived in January and he told Shazad that there were no street lights and because of the winter nights, he, quote, thought there was no day here. We would only see the daylight for three or four hours and then it was dark. He recalled that the local English people and the local police were very kind to the new arrivals. He shared a house with 10 other Bengali migrants and they spent most of their money back to their families in Bangladesh. He brought his family to Britain in 1971 after the Liberation War. Samos has nine children. His oldest son owns a restaurant nearby. Three of his daughters are teachers. One is a secretary and one is a social worker, though she used to be a police officer. His youngest two children are students. He said he was happy living in Burnley because he told us that unlike in nearby Oldham, in Burnley there are no racists. Burnley, of course, is currently one of the strongholds of the British National Party. <laughs> and I mention that not, not to disagree with Shamos' experience, actually, but because these stories of Bengali migration are also the story of Britain. This is the story of the East India Company, of the rise of empire, of two world wars when Bengali sailors, uh, like Shamsul, worked and died in the bellies of the merchant navy ships. And it's the story of the abandonment of the imperial project. It's the story, too, of Britain's imperial docks in East London, where the majority of where the ships of the East India Company embarked from and sailors disembarked. It's the story of the post-war labour shortage, of the migration of peoples from the subcontinent to work in the cotton mills, the steel industries and the sweatshops. It's the story, too, of the seemingly endless, un unending struggle against racism. It's the story of deindustrialization. It's the story of the rise of multicultural Britain. And, of course, it's the story of chicken tikka masala. So these stories are our story. And what we're hoping is that this website will bring some of these stories to life for a new generation of British young people, whatever their background or their heritage. That it will encourage them to consider how far we've come, literally and symbolically. The website will go live in the new year, probably in February. Um, so we've started putting stuff on, but it's, it's not complete. And we'll be launching the education pack that goes with that uh, shortly afterwards. And I hope you've probably seen the flyers. I hope that you'll take the time to check out the website at some point and explore for yourselves some of the extraordinary lives of very ordinary people. Thank you.
Cool. And that's, uh, that's where you can get hold of the site. So, so do have a look. I'm, I'm Rob Berkeley. I'm, let's see, as it says, uh, I'm, I'm director of the Running Meat Trust. Um, and I just want to share with you a little bit about what we're doing at the moment. Uh, and, uh, and maybe uh, exhort you to get more involved with our work. I think the uh, Confucian saying uh, that may you, wish, may you live in interesting times is meant as much as a, as a curse as a blessing. Uh, and these are certainly interesting times to be working in race equality. Interesting in a number of ways, uh, in part because we live in a society in which social mobility appears to have stalled. Those who have it, i.e. the money and the power, are getting much better at keeping it for themselves and their families. Those who don't are both locked out and vilified for not trying harder. Too many of those who are locked out are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. These are interesting times as the racist far right enjoys electoral success it's not enjoyed for many years. Interesting times as we herald breakthroughs for many black and minority ethnic people from FTSE 100 uh, CEOs to winning reality TV popularity contests uh, to gaining parliamentary seats. Yet we still see so many minority ethnic people living in poverty, socially excluded and alienated. These are interesting times as the room suggests we are heading for a major political change without many happy memories of the last Tory period in government. Michael Banton uh, has, has tried to create a typology about where we are currently now in terms of race equality and he reminds us of the colour line, uh, the discrimination which people face on a day-to-day -day basis on the, on the basis of their heritage or their colour, uh, where people suffer exclusion uh, from opportunity in the job interview or in the street, over-surveyed by the police, uh, victims of low expectations in classrooms, or at the most extreme, victims of violence. And seven people uh, have, have actually been killed in the last two years at the hands of racists. But he also highlights what he calls uh, the colour scale, where large groups of people suffer as a result of structural and institutional racism that creates over-representation in the criminal justice system, persistent underachievement for some groups in education and employment, and, and where ultimately being born black or Asian in Britain impacts on your life expectancy. So running means work is as important uh, now as it was in 1968. So in order to take on some of these difficult challenges that we face, uh, Running Mead is refreshing its work. It's building on the legacy of ideas and commitment bequeathed to us by Jim Rose and his colleagues and the numerous people who have contributed to Running Mead's work over the years many of you uh, who I recognise here today. So the research continues uh, with work on stop and search, on exclusions from school, on migrant integration, on European policy, on widening participation in higher education, on poverty and on financial inclusion. But building on this research, we will also work to engage politicians, policymakers and citizens in debate, in debate and action to challenge race inequality. So in order to do that, we will re-establish the all-party parliamentary group on race and community. We will continue to build curriculum resources uh, like Bangla Stories and the Real Histories Directory so that young people can get, gain access uh, to finding out more about the diversity of society in which they live. We'll be launching Runnymede Online uh, with a greater facility for debate and for discussion, online conferences and many ways in which people can become uh, more involved with our work. 
we recently funded for a, a large arts project to engage young people uh, in action to challenge race inequality. And we'll be having more meetings, public meetings like this, to uh, encourage debate and to create greater discussion. And this new work uh, will have a new look, which you're probably the first to see. Uh, it will have a new, a new look, but will retain research and evidence at its heart. We want to be a hub and a host for intelligence for a multi-ethnic Britain. So I hope you will join us uh, and support us in playing our part in this struggle uh, for race equality and that our work will support yours. I also hope that we will live up to the example and inspiration of Jim Rose. Thanks for coming and thanks very much.